Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 34. However, I'll be reading verses 22 and 23. We continue our series in the life and theology of the Apostle Paul. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your Spirit would instruct our hearts and our minds through your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we heard and understood from the Word of God that Paul has one gospel. I'm sure we were aware of that, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, that he lived for us, giving us his righteousness, that he died for us, taking upon himself our sins and paying our debt, and that he rose for us from the grave, securing our justification. And when it came to the gospel, Paul accepted no substitutes. Anyone preaching anything other than that gospel was anathema. To deny the gospel, we learn, is to deny God. And what we didn't cover last week, but we've covered, in fact, it was the very first sermon that I preached here at St. Stephen. Uh, Paul does teach, though, that if you accept the gospel, that if you acknowledge the gospel, that you believe the gospel, it is the power of God. Paul knew this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And so knowing that's true of Paul, that he believed that, it's no surprise that we find him on the mission field sharing the good news with people, sharing that powerful gospel with people from all across the spectrum, Jews and Gentiles, the Greeks, the rich and the poor. He shares that gospel with the intellectuals and the common folk, the uneducated. But in our passage this morning, Paul is with the Greeks, and it's not just any Greeks, He's with the, the cultural and the intellectual elites of the time, and he's in the famed city of Athens. Now, we need to have some background. We're not going to go into detail here, but Paul in Athens wasn't a, tri- a trip that he planned. And on his missionary journey, his work was spreading throughout Jerusalem, And the response to Paul was always the same. Some listened, some believed, and others despised the message. Signs and wonders were performed confirming the message. But Paul was still persecuted for the gospel. We know that. He was threatened with stoning. Paul was thrown out of cities. And it reached a breaking point in Berea. And so Paul's companions decided that what they needed to do was to take action, and so they sent Paul on a cruise. Uh, We read in verses 14 of Acts 17 uh, that the brothers immediately sent Paul alone without Silas, 
without Timothy, off on a boat along the Greek coastline for over 250 miles, and they sent him to the great city of Athens. Why they did this, we're not told, but it seems that it was agreed upon that Paul needed a vacation of sorts. He had been working hard. He'd been through a lot. All this preaching, and then on top of that, the preaching with the persecution, it was time for him to get some rest. He was probably emotionally and physically exhausted from all that he's been through. And so off to Athens he goes. This would be his first time there. And Paul is an intellectual elite, as you know. We learned that in our sermon on Paul. It must have been invigorating for him to visit this place. He heard so much about growing up. Athens was renowned for its literature. It was renowned for its culture, for its art and and philosophy. Athens was actually the birthplace of democracy, of music, ethics, theater, and medicine. It was the past home of Socrates and and Plato and Aristotle. It was actually the home of the temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. Uh, And that goddess, Athena, was the patron for them. This was the cradle of Western civilization. And here's Paul. He's on holiday, as it were. But this vacation wouldn't last long. He's making his way through the city, and we learn, John Stott points out, that we learn he saw something, he felt something, he did something, and he said something. And that's going to be our outline. Take that from John Stott. What Paul saw, we see that in verse 16. What Paul felt, we also see that in verse 16. What Paul did is in verse 17 and 18. And then what Paul said is also verse 18 to verse 34. And so given that's the majority of the text, we're going to focus on what Paul said. But let's walk through these four points, and you'll, and you'll see what's going on here. First, what Paul saw. We read in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Silas and Timothy, as he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. If Paul was here looking forward to enjoying the culture as he waited for his friends, his plans quickly changed. He's walking through the city, and what catches his eye is not the beautiful architecture. It was the actual idols that were there. Idols were everywhere. Our text says full of idols, but the idea conveyed seems to be that it was smothered with idols. The famous saying of the time was that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a human being because of all the idols. It was a city in the service of creature worship rather than the worship of the creator, says Derek Thomas. And see, this elicits a response from Paul. And so he sees these idols, and bringing us to our second point, what he felt, he felt disagreement. He felt anger. The word used here in Acts, 15, in, in Acts 17, verse 15, is to describe Paul's sharp disagreement. It's the same word we find earlier that Paul uses with Barnabas. Remember when Paul and John Mark disagreed? That strong disagreement, that's the word here in Acts 17. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used in reference to God's anger. 
his anger at the idolatry of the people. This isn't simply an emotional outburst. Paul uh, isn't simply acting in bad behavior, having a bad temper, because they're so ignorant. He's not just mad at that. Nor is he responding out of fear for their eternal salvation. He sees all these idols and thinks, oh my, they're going to be lost. See, Paul is most upset here because he is jealous for the name of the Lord. That is what upsets him. That's what angers him. He is responding to idols the way God responds to idols. We learn in Scripture that God is a jealous God. God is self-centered. You can put it that way. He does not share his glory. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor I praise to carved idols, says Isaiah 42.8. And and to worship carved idols provokes God's anger. We read about that in Psalm 106. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. And so that's the anger God feels. And so what Paul is feeling here is what students of the Bible, they call righteous indignation. He was bothered by the fact that God was not being worshipped, and God should be worshipped. He was jealous for God's glory. And so Paul is greatly upset in his spirit. He's actually infuriated. He's infuriated that such a great city with such a great culture would be so deeply involved in worshiping anything or anyone beyond the living God. And so this provokes Paul to do something. And that's our third point, what Paul does. Look at verse 17 beginning and the beginning of verse 18. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. See, Paul did not only see the idolatry and then feel this divine jealousy. What Paul does is he he wants to do something about it. And his reaction wasn't simply negative. He didn't kind of throw up his hands in despair over what he sees in the city. He didn't curse them out. Paul responds positively. What does he do? He bears witness to Christ. What he does is he seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to prevail them to turn away from their idols. See, Paul didn't believe, like so many today seem to believe, Paul didn't believe that all religions lead to God. And so we're told he reasons with them. The word means to discuss. It means to debate. And and he reasons with three groups of people as he's in Athens. First, in verse 17, we're told that he began where he always began. He began in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. And so what would he have done there? So if he's reasoning with them, he would turn to the Old Testament and what he did it was is try to prove Christ, and it did prove Christ as the Messiah using the Old Testament. Well, second, we're told that he reasoned every day in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. Anybody that came by, he would, he would reason with them. He would witness to them. We would call this street evangelism. That's what Paul was doing. He shared the gospel with anyone 
who would listen. And then there's the third group, the Epicureans and Stoics. These were the two famous philosophical schools whose worldviews were entirely different from Paul's, completely different. The Epicureans and the Stoics were the dominant philosophers in Greek culture. The Epicureans believed that the chief purpose for living was pleasure and happiness. For them, if God existed at all, he didn't interfere in human affairs. And so man's chief end is pleasure. That's what they believe. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything was God, and whatever happened to them was their destiny. Uh, and, you know, we use the saying now, they're very stoic, that stiff upper lip idea. I can't do anything. I can't control everything. And so whatever happens to me, so be it. But I'm going to take a stand, and I'm going to be strong in the midst of it, and I'm going to stick out my chin no matter what comes. That's the Stoics. Well, both of those philosophies and ways of life, worldviews, were in contrast to Paul's. And so it's no surprise that we read that he had no idea, they had no idea what he was talking about. You got to understand that. They, were, they couldn't understand. Look at verse 18. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now, they reason that he preached foreign divinities, and it's in the plural because the Greek word for resurrection was also a woman's name. And so they thought he was talking about two foreign gods, this whoever this Jesus is, and anastasis, which is Greek for resurrection. And so they had no frame of reference. They had no idea how to comprehend what he was saying, what Paul was telling them. But this is important, and here's the point I want to make here specifically. Despite their ignorance and the lack of categories, their ability to kind of understand the gospel for comprehending what Paul was teaching, Paul didn't have any problem at all preaching them Jesus. That's what he talked about. One writer says, Paul doesn't soft-pedal specific Christian distinctives in the interest of gaining a platform for further evangelism. He said he doesn't get, sit back and say, wow, they're not going to understand what I mean by Jesus and the resurrection, and so let me start somewhere else. Let me do something else and talk about other things. No, he doesn't do that. He preaches Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. And because he does that, it gets their attention. Look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now let's set the scene of what's going on here. Paul is taken now to the Areopagus. Literally, it's the hill of Ares. The Greek equivalent is Mars. So it's called Mars Hill. It was formerly the place where the most revered judicial court of ancient Greece met. Years before this, Socrates was brought before this court and found guilty of corrupting the youth doing, by doing evil and by proclaiming foreign deities. And that's where Socrates was ordered to be put to death. Well, now Paul's here, and he's standing before them. 
And they're not so much a judicial court anymore, but they're a council. A council that could integrate Paul and possibly have him tried in a court of law. And so they wanted to inquire about these foreign deities that Paul proclaimed. And so Paul, in the providence of God, stands before this world-famous Supreme Court on this world-famous Mars Hill, a place, Luke tells us, look at verse 21, where all the people would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Their occupation, their full-time job was philosophy, and they were there to learn new teaching. And so Paul is given the opportunity of lifetime to teach these intellectually elite philosophers what he's been babbling about, what he's been talking about. He's going to share with them something new that is nothing new to Paul, but the gospel, he's going to share that gospel that he's not ashamed of. It'd be like being brought before Congress, and they say, okay, tell us what you're going on about. What's all this talk about Jesus and the resurrection? Can you explain that? And you'd have an opportunity to share before Congress. Or, or maybe, since not many in Congress are intellectuals, you have, you have Harvard, or you have Yale, or you go to Oxford or Cambridge. What would you speak about? They ask you to speak. What would you say? And that leads us to what Paul would say. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Paul, he's now brought before this this court of sorts, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, that or this I proclaim to you. Now Paul begins by showing them respect. How do we know that? Well, he stood. And that was the the customary attitude of an orator. And he begins by addressing them politely, men of Athens. Remember, Peter says this. We offer a reasoned defense of the hope that is within us, and we do it with meekness and respect. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul doesn't begin with sarcasm. He doesn't begin with anger. There's no name-calling. His approach is nothing like our political debates today. He is respectful, and he is polite, but he is also bold. He begins his address by calling them very religious, And his text is not the Old Testament, like it would have been in the synagogue, but an inscription of one of their altars he came across as he was walking in their city. His text is this this altar that said, the unknown God. Paul doesn't begin here with the Bible per se. There's no point at this point where they're asking him what he believes for him to say, well, Moses says. They didn't care what Moses said. They wouldn't have known maybe what Moses says. Uh, They don't care what the Pentateuch read. Um, They never read the Old Testament. And so Paul doesn't begin there. But understand, Paul is not putting the Bible aside in order to find some kind of common ground with these so-called religious people. This is a kind of a point of contact. There's no denying that they were very religious given the idols everywhere, but it's not common ground. 
Paul wasn't saying, look, we're all religious. We're all religious. That's good. Let me introduce you to another God, and maybe you'll believe him better. And, and then we can all get along. No, the term translated very religious here literally means fears of superstitious spirits. And is sometimes translated very religious and sometimes somewhat superstitious. There's no real English equivalent that we can translate it perfectly. See, the first meaning, very religious, would be a compliment to them. They're very religious. The second would be a rebuke. And while his listeners were listening to Paul speak, they wouldn't have known which one he meant. He, he didn't point it out. And, and I believe Paul was being vague. So that the, the listeners would wonder whether the good or bad sense was being stressed. And, and, and he was given this double blow, as it were. Complimenting them and rebuking them. One writer said, you see, men cannot eradicate a religious impulse within themselves. That's why there's idols. And yet this good impulse has been degraded by rebellion against the living and true God. That's why they're actual idols. It's like one uh, person said, we have this God-shaped hole in us and it must be filled and it either will be filled with the God of Scripture or it will be filled with an idol. And so with this one phrase, very religious, and as we will see with this whole speech, Paul summarizes, as it were, what he'll say later and write later in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul says, although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How? How did they become fools? Verse 23 in Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That was what was true of the Athenians. They had this impulse in them that there was a God. They, they knew that there was a God. They knew God. But they distorted it. And they twisted it. In fact, they didn't even think they could really know whoever God is. Who, who he or maybe she or it is. Why? They, well, they had an inscription to the unknown God. They just weren't sure. And so Paul's words here put them on a collision course with their religion. He acknowledges that they worship, but he doesn't tell them their worship is valid. And he can illustrate this reality by pointing to the inscription he found to an unknown God. So that's how he would begin. He would build upon what they already admitted, that they do not know who they are worshiping. That's the setup. And then he proceeds from there to make his case. They, they don't know who they're worshiping. You said it yourself, guys. You don't know who you're worshiping. Well, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And the remainder of this sermon speech, he goes on to proclaim the living and true God in six ways. And in and, and, and those six ways, he exposes their errors and even horrors of idolatry. He, he proclaims six truths about God. Now, this isn't a full development of who God is. 
nor a full development of all these six truths. You've got to understand, this speech that we just read in a few minutes and would have likely been the full speech would have been about two hours. Paul would have been speaking. We have a summary version. We can read it in two minutes. But in reality, they say he spent two hours. And, and, and so Paul proclaims these six truths about God. When he's actually there, he's speaking a lot more. But we get a summary. He talks about God as creator. He says that God is self-sufficient. He says that God is Father. He says that God is ordainer, and he is sustainer, and he is judge. And so we're going to look at these real quick. First, he asserts that God is creator. Look at verse 24. Then God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, this was completely contrary to the Epicureans who believed that chance brought about creation. And Stoics who believed in pantheons, that God was creation. You see the the distinction there. Paul says no to both. God is both personal and creator of everything that exists. And as creator, he's not the same as the creature. He, He has made everything. And so it's kind of foolish, Paul is saying, to believe that the creator and Lord of the universe lives in man-made temples, which is what they believed everywhere. They were everywhere, all these idols, all these temples, all these shrines. And Paul says, it's silly that you would think that there's a God in there. God is the creator. There's a distinction between him and his creation. Well, second, Paul says God is self-sufficient. Look at verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not in their debt. That's what he's reminding them of. They do not provide for God. God provides for them. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the Father has life In himself. God within himself possesses every quality, every ability, and supernatural command. And he he possesses those things with never-ending measure. Every attribute or mighty and wonderful power is God's endlessly. He wants for nothing and lacks for nothing. God is complete. He, he, he did not bring his worlds into being to meet some unfulfilled need. It wasn't that God was bored with himself. Or I, I'm just missing something. Let me create the world. That's not the case at all. He has no needs. God does not need us. That's the point. We are not doing him a favor by coming to church or performing a religious duty. We need him. That's why we worship him. And that's what Paul is pointing out. They need him. Their idols are doing nothing. Well, third, God is father of all mankind, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And in verse 28, he quotes their poets, saying, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, Paul here isn't speaking about what we mean when we say God is our father. When we say that, in terms of salvation... God is only the father to the believer. Remember, Jesus says, you're children of the devil. 
to the unbeliever. But in terms of creation, we all come from God, so in that way, he is our father. He's the father of all human beings. And despite quoting their poets, this would have rubbed the proud Greeks the wrong way. Why? Because they believed themselves to be racially superior to all other beings, all other people, all other nations. The Greeks said that they, they were the Greeks and the barbarians. And, and so Paul's saying, no, we all come from the same father. And they wouldn't have liked that. And so this God that Paul proclaimed is the father of the one race of human beings. Everyone is his offspring. All are his creatures. Again, emphasizing that creator and, and creature distinction. And so that he emphasizes. Fourth, God is the ordainer of life. Look at verse 26. He determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He not only created us, he not only created this world, he also ordained everything that comes to pass. God is in control of what happens. He determined that the Greeks would be Greeks, that the Athenians would be Athenians, Americans would be Americans. He's allotted times for their existence as well as the boundaries of their borders. Basically, Paul was saying that we're not living in Athens as a result of some cosmic accident. You're here because God has structured it that way, structured their lives in order to attract him, them to him. He determined all these things, we're told in verse 27, why? So people would search for him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And so the idea here is that of, of kind of groping and fumbling of a blind man. Uh, think of the Cyclops with Homer where he loses his eye and he can't see and he's fumbling around in the dark. Um, they tried to escape. Remember the men tried to escape and it was difficult for the Cyclops to stop him because he was groping around. That's the word Paul uses here. It's as if he's saying in our sin we are blind. We're blind like Cyclops. Nevertheless, we're created in the image of God and we have this instinct to worship but we're like blind people groping around trying to discover who he is. That's what he's claiming here. And he quotes this 6th century poet from Crete to make his point. In him we live and move and have our being. God is not some faraway God that has forgotten his creation. And he's not a God who's uninterested in his creation. In fact, without God, his creation would cease to exist. And that's our fifth point. He is the ordainer of life, but he's also the sustainer of life. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Paul already alluded to this in verse 25 when he said that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now what Paul's doing here is exposing three flawless Greek ideas. So he's confronting them. First, they believed that God was unknowable. Second, they believed that, that God lived in these temples. And third, that God was not involved in human affairs. 
But the very fact, though, and this is what Paul's emphasizing, the very fact that we in the world are here, that we are alive, and that we can think about the world and ourselves are all due to the fact that God is indeed involved and active in sustaining us. That's the point Paul is driving home. If God has revealed himself in creation as he has, and if God sustains creation as he does, if God has determined the bounds and the habitations of our destiny, which Paul says is true, then we have an obligation to cease from worshiping false idols and reach out to find the true and living God. That's his argument. And because God has revealed himself and sustains us and is not far from us, we're accountable to him if we do not find him. And that leads to the last truth about God. He is judge. Paul has now come to his conclusion. Remember, that would have been two hours of talking here. And you see, for the Apostle Paul, it was not enough that he simply told them what he believed. Well, let me just share what I believe, and you can add it with the rest. He, he realizes that they now have an obligation because he spoke to them. He begins by confronting their idolatry, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Basically, he's saying, look, because God created us and sustains us, your idols are a hindrance. They're actually keeping you from God. And more than that, they're an abomination to the very God who does exist. And so stop idol worship. Since we are made in the image of God, it's insulting to God and degrading to us to make an idol of him. And so they need to repent, especially since there is a promise coming judgment. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now Paul goes back to where he began, their ignorance. They themselves admitted in the inscription to the unknown God that they were ignorant of God. Paul now says that ignorance is no excuse. It is no excuse. They are accountable to him. They are culpable. They will have to answer to God on the day of judgment for their ignorance since God has revealed himself through his creation. Again, that's what Paul said in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because these men suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And that's what Paul's arguing. They will be judged. The judgment is definite. A day for it has already been fixed, Paul says. It's been appointed by God. The day of judgment will come on the exact day God appointed. The judgment is universal. He will judge the world. And the judgment is righteous. He will judge the world in righteousness, we're told. And although we don't know the day of God's judgment, we do know who the judge is. 
He has appointed the day and he's appointed the judge. He will judge the world in righteousness, Paul says, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising this man from the dead. We know they don't or they didn't. This judge is Jesus. Now, a lot of preachers, preachers will come to this text and talk here about the evidences for the resurrection. You know, he, he's saying that God will judge them by, by and prove that Jesus is the rightful judge because he raised them from the dead, and so the preacher stops here, and, 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 and at this point I would have to give you the five reasons for the resurrection, as if that's what Paul was doing, giving a defense of the resurrection. But that's not what we see here. Paul doesn't prove the resurrection. He says the resurrection is the proof for the judgment. That's the the coming judgment. The fact of coming judgment is dependent on the fact of the resurrection. The very thing that they're confused about, the very thing they're thinking he's talking about some other goddess, the resurrection, is what Paul sets forth as evidence that someday this man, Jesus, will come judge them. And so they must repent. He calls them to repentance, to repent of their sin, repent of their blind, groping worship, repent of the exchanging the glory of God for an idol. And so he calls them out and says, you have to do these things. Get rid of these idols. Repent. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. And they don't like it. They don't like it at all. They like bantering. They, they liked ideas and having conversations, but they didn't like consequences coming from those ideas. And see, the, the ideas that Paul set forth have consequences from them. Some mocked, we're told, in verse 32. Some still had questions, again in verse 32. And some believed in verse 34. They're basically all the responses got all the time. Paul got all the time. And, and those three responses are really just two. There is unbelief and there's belief. The person who still had questions is still living in unbelief. There's no middle ground. And, and so most in this situation don't believe Paul. He presents Christ risen from the grave, says repent. Why? Because Christ is risen from the grave. And their response is, this guy's crazy. And so, since the majority rejected Paul's gospel, you have a lot of people today, and preachers and and scholars, that say Paul had a bad day here in Athens. I mean, he failed. He he went about it wrong. That's what they say. You know, he he brought up the resurrection. He didn't like the resurrection. He shouldn't have done it. And some scholars believe that. But do you really think Luke included this story so we would see Paul failing? I mean, it's kind of silly. The Holy Spirit includes this one example from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul addressing these pagan intellectual elites. He probably had hundreds of examples. Luke could have included. He includes this one. Would he include it so we could see Paul as a failure? No, that's not it at all. See, this is included here because it teaches us that the gospel is for people of all walks of life, And we must have compassion on all. He shares it because it teaches us that our approach to evangelism, how we reach the lost, must take into consideration those who we are speaking to, 
in the Jewish synagogue? Are we on the streets? Are we at Harvard? Where we're at, we should take those things in the, in, into consideration. That's the reason it's there. He shares it because it also teaches us that we do not compromise with non-Christian worldviews, hoping to gain a hearing by not confronting them with their sin or teaching them about the resurrection, even things that they don't want to hear. You hear it all the time when you're challenged to evangelize. Now, you don't have to be Paul to evangelize. And we don't have to do everything exactly the same. The point is, though, we need to present the gospel. It doesn't matter if they don't want to hear it. And, 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 and Luke shares this story because it reminds us that preaching the gospel must always include a call to repentance. It's not enough to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a start. That is the gospel. And because Jesus rose from the dead, now you have to add in, and you have to repent of your sin if you deny him. Why? Because everybody in the world today is worshiping. Everybody. And everybody in the world today, according to Paul, know God. They suppress that truth about God. They press it down, and they don't want to acknowledge it, and so they need to repent about that. And he shares this because it's an example that Paul was never, ever, ever, ever ashamed of the gospel, no matter where he was, intellectual or not. And finally, he shares it, and I'll close with this. He shares it because it, it teaches us something we often forget, this particular story of Paul, that the main motive for you to evangelize is the glory of God's name. That's the main motive. Paul was jealous for God's glory when he saw the idols. And because of that, it drove him to share the gospel. There's no greater motivation to evangelism, to world missions, even, even beyond compassion for people who are lost. That's a good thing. You should have that. But there's no greater motivation for evangelism than a divine jealousy that God's name needs to be praised. That Jesus Christ's name needs to be lifted up among the nations. And so let me be clear. And let me ask this question. Does it bother you, even in New Holland, that people are worshiping dead idols today? When Jesus alone, your Savior, is worthy of worship, does it bother you? Well, that's what we learn here. And so may God's Spirit work on all of us that we should see as we're out and about. We'll see as Paul saw. That we, we would have a, a response, a feeling as Paul felt. And that we would do as Paul did. That we would speak the truth in love, that people need to repent because Jesus Christ died and rose again from the grave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not always jealous for your glory. In fact, at times we were embarrassed of our relationship with you, and so we repent. And we ask, Father, that you would give us a, a burning desire that your name would be lifted up, that your son's name would be lifted up, and that we would proclaim that name in love to all those around us who are worshiping idols. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.